Well, we read from Psalm 19, uh, and I, there was a line in Psalm 19 that uh, told everybody to eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Dr. Dean Ornish would not approve. <laughs> There's a lot of that in the Bible, you know, but what can you say? I want to preach on all three readings from Nehemiah, from 1 Corinthians, and from the Gospel, from St. Luke, uh, for a variety of reasons. I wish I could tell you that there was a good book or guide that you could get that explains why we read what we read when we read it. But uh, it's to be found in a variety of places. Uh, but it's particularly important for me personally because it would be nice to know in the Green Sundays uh, why these readings are chosen. And uh, that is, has to do partly with the tradition with the capital T, certain of the great days and seasons. We have read uh, the readings we, have re we read because they have been read for, you know, 1,500 years. But some of these readings are chosen by committees and so on, so it's hard to know. Why does Nehemiah appear uh, today in this reading? So I have a speculation about that. I think it relates to the reading from the Gospel, where Jesus is in his hometown synagogue. And the value of this reading from Nehemiah has something to do with giving us, uh, many centuries before that, an idea of what the synagogue liturgy would have been like, and it was just like the one in Nazareth. Ezra and Nehemiah are two books that have to do with the restoration of the Torah to the people of Israel after the return from the Babylonian captivity. And so they rediscovered, I think the image is you go into the ruins of the temple, step into the stones, and you go back into some room, and somebody came out with some scrolls and went, <laughs> opened them up and said, oh, this is the Torah. So they started to read it out. And what did they do today? Nehemiah is there with the listeners. Somebody unrolls the scroll. They all stand up. He reads from the scrolls, and then he gives the sense. Preaches. So in the Christian liturgy, in 2013 at St. Luke's Church, when we read the gospel, we all stand up, the gospel is read, and then you get, hopefully, the sense. Or the nonsense. Depending on your point of view. Uh, one of the things that has influenced my preaching from the beginning was my teacher, O.C. Edwards, who said, the preaching is the apostolic commentary on the Holy Scriptures. So I used to hear sermons when I was in the Episcopal Church before I went off to seminary about what a wonderful thing God made uh, when he made a sailboat. You know, that kind of stuff. So sooner or later we got around to the sailboat and the sails being filled with the wind, and it had something to do with the Holy Spirit. And some people said, oh, isn't that nice? Well, you know, this is more serious business than sailboats, as fun as they are. So Nehemiah is setting us up for the gospel, and I'll get to that in a minute. 
But I want to say something about 1 Corinthians. We're continuing there from last week and to explain the situation on the ground. Because Paul is speaking of a concept that he himself seems to have developed. It is unique to the Pauline writings in the New Testament. And that is the church as the body of Christ. And what do we mean when we speak of the church as the body of Christ? And how do we understand it? So today, this letter is being written to the church in Corinth, a very diverse congregation and deeply influenced by a species of Christianity that we now call Gnostic Christianity. So in one sense, it is possible that the way he phrases it in 1 Corinthians, he has borrowed the concept of the body of Christ from the Gnostics. But he wants to make sure when he speaks about this that he distances himself from their understanding of what they mean. And what they meant was that when he would speak of the church as the body of Christ, they meant each individual Christian person is the body of Christ. And Paul means that he is saying the Christian community is like Christ's body. It's a simile, comparing one thing to another. So he wants to make sure that people understand that. And when he's not writing to the Corinthians, and he writes to the epistle to the Romans, he says, we are one body in Christ. He qualifies this a little bit more. But the point that he's trying to make is that when he speaks of the unity of the body of Christ, that we are the body of Christ, he means this body needs all of the diversity and pluralism that he describes in his reading today. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the early church was the ongoing respect for diversity and the equal welcome given to those who gathered. Rich landowners shared communion with their slaves. Peasants and their rulers broke bread together. It was like nothing people had ever seen. In Christ, rich and poor, ruler and outcast were made one. That's from a commentary that I looked up when I wrote my sermon this week. So we've also learned something about the nature of the body of Christ, and this reading is important to us because it tells us something about how the Christian church in all, most places began to order itself. Remember, the earliest writings in the New Testament are Paul's writings. So this probably dates from sometime in the early 50s AD. And he's already describing how this community is organized and the authority is dispersed throughout it. So the three important offices in Corinth are apostles, prophets, and teachers. And then he describes the other talents and skills and abilities that people have uh, in sort of a declining order. So if you're an early church historian and you begin to read this, you'll, you'll begin to see that he is describing something that we see emerging in many places. So Henry Chadwick, in his introduction 
uh, to early Christianity, says by the second century, the, or by the third century, the 200s, three things emerge in this order. The episcopate, so apostles, prophets, and teachers are now collapsed into the office of apostle, a bishop, episcopoi. A baptismal creed, which is the creed we use when we have baptism or renew our baptismal vows at St. Luke's Church from the Book of Common Prayer. And the third thing was the canon of the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the books of the Bible that we consider our sacred literature. And in the beginning of the, of the second century, or the third century, we're talking about an incomplete list. But it was beginning. So the final list that we get in Christianity is 369 A.D. And we know now what the books of the New Testament are that are considered sacred and what the books in the Hebrew Bible are that are considered sacred. And there have always been some differences within the Christian community about those things. So there was a period of time when people said the books in the Hebrew Bible should only be the Hebrew books. And there were a bunch of books in Greek that the Jews used to read in the diaspora, and they said those are not in. And then there are a group of Christians who say we want both the Hebrew books and we want the Greek books. And in Christianity, what we said initially was, we want the Hebrew books, and we want the Greek books, and then we want to have our Christian scriptures in the order that we now possess them. So by the time of the Reformation and Martin Luther, he shows up and says, all those Greek books are out in the Old Testament, we just want the Hebrew books. So in Protestant Bibles... You don't have the Greek books. In Episcopalian Bibles, in Roman Catholic Bibles, and in Eastern Orthodox Bibles, you have the Greek books. So you can keep that on ice and amaze your friends about how that all happened. So Paul is speaking about the diversity of the body of Christ and its necessity for how we move forward. And it's hard for us to believe that this remove uh, the radical nature of what that community life was like with all of its plural views and all of its contention. There was nothing like it. In the reading from Luke, we have the beginning of Jesus now uh, giving us some idea of what I've been talking about over the last several weeks. The middle bits from his birth to his arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. There's a whole lot of middle stuff that often gets ignored. Well, today he is laying out a piece of his program that is going to be part of his preaching and teaching in his earthly ministry. And he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes into the synagogue, and it says, as was his custom which is a way of saying to us that he was an observant and pious Jew. He goes into the synagogue. Everybody stands up. They bring him the scroll. He reads from the scroll. He then sits down, and it says he began to say. 
He preaches to them. And they cut to the chase. Today this, re this reading has been fulfilled in your sight when he speaks about this. We've dug up a lot of synagogues in the, di in the diaspora and in Nazareth now, and we know what they look like. And when you read this reading, you have an exact idea of where he sat and what he did. The other thing that isn't ref uh, made much notice of is that he read from the book of the prophet Isaiah, which means somebody taught him how to read Hebrew. And it is not uh, a common thing in his class to know this. Although he may have got it from his mother because she was from the priestly line in the biblical narrative. So he begins now to speak about the work of the Spirit in the world to bring the good news to the poor, to bring liberation to the captive, to bring sight to the blind, to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. Now when he would have said something like that, he would have been speaking to his audience and they would have understood that the acceptable year of the Lord would have been the jubilee. The jubilee was something that was supposed to happen in Israel every seven years. So it meant that everybody's debts were wiped away. People who had forfeited or lost their land had it restored to them. There was a general return uh, where everybody got well in, in economic and social terms. I have to say, in all honesty, there is no absolute historical evidence that there was ever a jubilee actually observed. Right? And I think if we were to try jubilee in 2013, at the very least, the bankers might be somewhat upset. So maybe we need to think about something else in that regard, and that jubilee has something to do with restoration and fulfillment. And how you and I as Christian people, if we follow this program, are to be instruments of that in the world. He is saying today that because we are possessors of the Holy Spirit of God, that we are instruments of God's purposes in the world. And I say over and over again, being possessors of the Holy Spirit means having within us God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us to empower us to be God's people in the world. So we understand that the presence of the Spirit is both corporate, community-driven, and internal, operating on our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, and giving us the skills and the abilities to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. And Jesus is speaking now to the people about this, as he is giving them his invitation to follow him on the way. How then must we live? What must we do? You know, I've been harping on this, but so much of Christianity for so long has been all organized on the basis of the Christian life is here to get you into heaven, to go somewhere else. And when you read the Gospels, what you read is the kingdom is here and you're an instrument of the kingdom. And you need to be, in big and small ways, part of the processes where the values of this kingdom are brought here. I was reminded at the sermon discussion group that um, 
Uh, some years ago now, Mother Morrison, Mary Morrison, gave me a present for my birthday or for Christmas. It was an old book. C.S. Lewis said, by the way, uh, when you read a new book, you should then read an old book. Because it reminds you of, you know, a deeper tradition than the new book. And I'm a terrible perpetrator of this. I go to a bookstore and when I buy a book on something, I look right at the front page to see when it was published. You know, how recent is this work? It's important to read an old book. Now, it was a great book, a bunch of essays written by some Episcopal clergy in the 1930s, and one written by Dr. Frank Gavin. And in this article, he said, for the last 1,500 years, the church's preaching about salvation has almost been entirely negative. We are saved from sin, sickness, and death. We are saved from ourselves. We're saved from all of the tribulation. We're saved from all of the stuff, the bad things. And the preaching of the primitive church, the first five centuries, was about you are being saved too. Newness of life, the possibility of transformation, the empowerment to make a difference in the world, the ability to understand how important and necessary you are to achieve God's purposes. So it's part of thinking about our role that leads us to understand that what Jesus is speaking of today when he reads from Isaiah is God's liberating work in the hearts of all faithful people. And how important that is. We need to do that. I'm reading a book again that I, I'd recommend to you all. Some of you may have read it by Ken Wilbur called The Marriage of Sense and Soul. And it's about the relationship between religion and science. Perhaps one of the most crucial flashpoints in the whole conversation about spirituality, religion, its role today, people's skepticism, a whole variety of things. And he says in this book, you know, we can make the case for the fact that the presence of religion in the world has been pernicious and caused great pain and suffering. And at the same time, the great paradox is that the only possibility for the coming together of all human beings is religion. And how we do this among the plural religious traditions that are part of the human race. And what is it that we need now to do? And how do we labor to make that message clear to people who are absolutely skeptical about that? You know, a person who is a scientism guy or gal is somebody who believes that there is only the material world. There is no other world but the material world. And we cannot know anything about anything but the material world. Right? And so things that occur in the world just occur. They have no purpose. You have no purpose. I have no purpose. We're just here. That's how it works. So get over it. Right? So what Jesus is getting at, oddly enough, is we are the possessors of the Spirit. 
And somehow the Spirit is necessary. And somehow we need to be ambassadors for the Spirit of God since God is making his appeal through us. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity to uh, be part of the body of Christ, to be one in Christ's body. Give thanks for the opportunity to uh, use the spirit, the spiritual power that each human being possesses. And when you do that, you can make a difference in the world. Amen.